Welcome to Verso, a new arts and culture podcast from Phillips. I'm your host, Beth Lissick. On each show, we bring together two guests from different parts of the art world to have an informal, socially distanced conversation about what they're thinking about right now. Today, we're talking watches with Daniela Rosa, Business Development Manager for Philips Watches in New York, and Aurel Bax, Global Authority on Collectible Watches and Auctioneer Extraordinaire. I wanted to start with a really wide view question. What is it about watches and why do people love them so much? I think in my experience, and I would consider myself an amateur in the watch world, I'm fairly new, about three years in. And I know in my personal experience, why I fell in love with the watch world is the passion that surrounds me every day. So of course, I'm, I'm surrounded by specialists and clients who have been in the, in the industry for years and years and years, but also new collectors, people who are buying their first watch. And there's always a story to tell. Each watch has a story to tell, and each person has a certain story with that watch that why they're looking for a certain watch. And um, I love kind of the, the behind the scenes and the passion of the stories themselves. And I think that's a big part of the watch world. Aurel, what's your answer to that? Why, why watches? Why do people love them so much? Since I was a boy, I was collecting all kinds of different things. The natural stamp collection, probably when I was six, um, taking the envelopes from letters my parents received in the mail, putting them overnight in a basin and sort of until the, the stamp was swimming on the surface and coins and sort of like you would call it baseball cards or soccer player cards. And then I came across watches thanks to my dad. And the watch compared to all these other things is by the definition something precious. I'm still today amazed by the craftsmanship that goes into a properly well-made high quality watch. Daniela, do you have a story of when you first caught a bu- the bug for watches? Um, I did have a spark, I would say. So I, I left college thinking I was going to go into international art law, decided that law school was not for me and, dis- and went into the auction world instead in Chicago. And while I was at this auction house, I was kind of thrown into the jewelry department because they needed extra help and started cataloging jewelry on day one and learned that way, learned by feeling, learned by touching, learned by talking to people and speaking with dealers. Five years later, I moved to New York and I wanted to pursue things in the auction world in New York. So I worked at galleries and a position came up in the watch department at Phillips I applied for a viewing assistant position, which is literally taking watches out of a case to show to clients, handling watches for the clients to look at. And um, while I was there, it was my first time that I was able to really talk with collectors, um, speak with the Philips watches team and be exposed to the passion that they have. And I said, I have to be a part of this group. I love the people. I love what I'm learning. I'm learning so much from talking to clients from looking at these beautiful pieces. And, and that was it for me. Four years later, I'm still at Phillips and I love it. Yeah, it's infectious. The, the excitement and passion for it is, is really infectious. In fact, if I may add, people come for the watches and they stay for the people. Great, thanks. You're known, Oral, for being 
just to having this unparalleled presence when you're doing a sale and watching some of those, really, I felt like I was watching a very riveting narrative film because you feel the drama, you feel, you can feel the room uh, coming with you. I was wondering if you could talk about uh, what it feels like to be at the podium in those moments. I know the watches I'm selling. I know the sellers. I know the people in the room. I know the people on the phone. I know the people online. I speak their language, hopefully. You speak um, how many languages? Uh, not, not that many. This is a myth that I'm <laughs> sort, of, sort of like a, a, a Webster dictionary. It's, it's not true. Some of the main European continental languages um, and English. Mm -hmm. And that makes me really super at ease with what I'm doing up there. Uh, I feel at home. I feel the community carries me. It just fires me up. Because I'm on fire, they feel um, something's going on. The team's there, the phone bidders, the watch comes in, there's cataloging, the, the administrators, the finance team, the accounting team, the shipping department. And you just want to do the best. You want to do justice for that watch. For the seller, whose grandfather had it, and it went through two wars, and it's amazing. So you've, you have that sense of duty towards the consigner, towards the team. You want to do justice for the watchmakers who made it 50 years ago, that their work is being recognized. So there is pressure that I would rather call motivation than actually pressure. Of course, there's a bit of showmanship involved, but I never know that five or 10,000 people are watching at home. I only see the, my staff, my colleagues, and the audience. And the audience are collectors I know for 10 or 20 years. So it's family. So it's like sort of on a New Year's party doing a few funny jokes. You're not really embarrassed if you make a, f a funny comment. So it's fun. Uh, it's extraordinarily uh, physically and mentally exhausting, no doubt. Um, but it feels so good, especially when things go by plan. Well, I don't know if this was by plan at all, but I was thinking about your the Paul Newman Daytona sale, which over 2 million people have watched that online. That video is 14 minutes long and there's so much drama in it. And I was wondering if you could just talk about what you felt like in that particular sale at the podium that day. I openly admit it was the most nerve wracking auction of my entire life. The expectations from the media, the market, the big influential dealers were huge. I was touching my hands. There was no feeling in my fingertips. I was, I don't know what my heart and my blood and my, my brain did in that moment. I was probably um, sort of, you would have measured my pulse. It would have been zero flatline. And then I started with an absentee bit in the book at a million dollar wondering where is this going to go now? Are we going to go to three, to five? And then I hear my colleague's Tiffany Toe's voice. And literally, I wasn't sure, did I hear 2 million or 10 million? I just heard million. And I thought, okay, 2 million, that's quite cool. But what if she said 10 million? Because I can't now say 2 million is the next bit, otherwise I ruined 8 million. So I said, what did you say? Like, did you say really two? And she said, no, sir, 10. The room was like, yay, 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 and plodding. And I said, okay, I was under that pressure what to do next. And 
I said to myself, but 10 million, this is more than, this is the world record for a new watch with the opening bid. But all this in those two or three seconds you can watch on YouTube where I didn't say anything. I couldn't, my jaws dropped, I, I, I didn't breathe. No, you were completely still. I thought that my screen had frozen because you were just, it was this stillness <laughs> and it, it was this extended stillness. It was really beautiful. Go on, go on. And then I took those $10 million from Tiffany thinking, okay, it was cool. It was like the souffle that just, but a 10 million, of course, nobody complains. And then comes Natalie with the graciousness of a queen, of an empress. I mean, not even with any sign of fatigue. 11, please. But with such nonchalance, it was like, oh my goodness, what is now happening? And then Tiffany comes back and then uh, we had a third fall. It went on and on and on. Okay, everything from now on is fun. Suddenly I see my fingers moving again. It was amazing. I really think that if I had 10 or 20 years more, I could have possibly passed out up there or even die of some instant heart failure. It was terribly stressful. But the most memorable auction of my life, looking at Nell and James in the second row, who th probably think thought at that moment of the late Paul Newman, the work he would have done with the money. It was so gratifying. And, and watch collecting was at its best. Cool watch, great consigners, wonderful family, great story, full of love. It was all, it was all. Thank you so much for going through that. I, I love, I think that people who have watched that video are gonna love to hear the, the behind the scenes on that. And the final, the final bid, the final sale, for those who don't know, was? All-inclusive, it was paid close to $18 million, 17.5 um, and something and change. Yeah, unbelievable. Thank you. Danielle, I wanted to talk to you about being a woman in the watch world and why it's important to you to bring other women into this world. Yeah, absolutely. It's, the watch world is, does have this kind of bubble idea of being this men's club, that it's definitely male dominated, but it's not exclusive at all to women. I don't feel like an outsider by any means. I've always worn a watch growing up. And I think that's because my dad always wore a watch and I wanted to be like him kind of thing. But what being in the watch industry now and kind of listening to new clients or my friends or fellow colleagues who want to buy their, their own watch, um, my girlfriends, things like that. The, the biggest thing that I hear is it's scary to walk into an auction house, into a watch exhibition and look at watches and feel like, oh my God, does that mean I need to place a bid? Does that mean I have to have X amount of dollars in my bank account? Where do I start? And I think it's just bridging that gap a little bit of saying, this is an accessible world to everyone. Doesn't matter who you are, what you are, where you are. You know, if you have five, $10 million in your bank account, you can buy a watch that you love. It's okay to say, I like what that watch looks like and I'm gonna buy it because I'm gonna wear it all the time. I love that. Cause this really is demystifying it for people who like, kind of like I did, you know, thought of it as, as this rarefied world. And then the minute I start talking to you guys, I'm all of a sudden now, I, I don't wear a watch and now I want to get a watch. The big sort of myth is you can't get into this exclusive world if you're not a scholar, if you're not 
a millionaire if you haven't already 50,000 followers on your watch Instagram page. There are many things that I am hugely passionate about and I know nothing about it. I can't cook and I'm not a sommelier. And if people come, especially the sommeliers, and they talk about, oh, it's from a southern hill and the sunshine in 2016 was particularly from that angle. I'm like, I know nothing. All I know is that when, I, when it tastes good, that I appreciate it, I'm having a good time. Take away that big book that you call Wine List. And mostly I'm actually um, really lucky how gracious those super masters of wine treat the novice who appreciates their work and a good wine. And I think I'm exactly the same. And we specialists at Philip are the same. As long as we feel there's, a, there's, there's curiosity, interest, a bit of sense for, for adventure, to dive into that emotional, intellectual world, then you are our, our next uh, member of the community. That's, that's great advice. And again, it comes back to the people. And it feels like the watch world is full of people who will, would love to bring you in. Daniela, I just want you to describe what it's like when you put on a beautiful watch. Oh, wow. Well, so my, the watch that I want to purchase for myself one day is a full gold bracelet. It's what I call 1980s Miami old man style. And I love it. It's a full gold <laughs> bracelet Rolex with some type of hard stone dial. Particularly what I want is what's called a Coral Stella dial. So I have a thing for cool dials and bright, bright colors on a gold watch. So we have had a few at Phillips come up. And of course, you know, when they come into town from Geneva or from Hong Kong, of course I have to put it on, pretend it's mine, walk around with it and just say, one day you will be mine. And I feel like a superhuman when I'm wearing it, but I have to say, I also feel like a superhuman when I wear my Rolex that I have in my collection that I wear every day. I absolutely love that thing. It's a stainless steel Rolex and I, it was the first watch I bought for myself and I bang it around all the time. I could basically go through a war and underwater with it and it would come out totally fine. And I just, I feel like it's part of me. I feel like it's part of me. What about you, Aurel? How do you feel when you, when you put on a beautiful watch? What does it feel like to you? A watch is something quite intimate actually it, it actually sits on your skin i mean how close can you get physically closer than sitting on your skin that watch on our wrist makes us become part of the watch the watch becomes part of us and you're just amazed by the finish the polish the the angles the the satin finish the the dial the lacquer the hard enamel you just realize that was a master who did it. So it's a combination of rational, emotional, and dreams all together. Bit of shivering, hot and cold. Yes, <laughs> Daniela, you said it wonderfully. How do you guys think that new technology, like how is that going to affect collectability in watches? Some people ask me quite a bit about the Apple Watch. And I've heard this a number of times. People say the Apple Watch is going to wipe out the mechanical watch industry, but it's actually done the opposite. It makes It's making people realize that they want to wind a watch or they want to have a piece of artwork and 
you know, a lot of collectors wear both. They wear an Apple watch and then they wear a mechanical watch on the other hand. And I think that's pretty interesting too. Just how adapting, adapting to both worlds. Yeah, I I see that too. In in vintage clothing or or um, you know, vinyl records or anything like that. It's like there's there's always going to be something about something that's old and handmade, but but at the same time, it's the world that you're immersed in. So you kind of have to embrace the changes. Speaking of the technology and the Apple Watch, the first thing I'd like to say, I love everything Apple. So thank you, Apple, for sending me flowers. But seriously, an Apple Watch is not a watch. So let's just immediately stop that. It's not a watch. Where's the watch? I mean, the, the notebook I'm now talking to you about, is that a watch just because it shows the time top right? No. What it is, it's fighting for your space on the wrist. And you have two wrists. Yes, you could have an Apple Watch and a nice mechanical watch on the other side. Is it comfortable? I don't know. But it's a computer that you wear on your wrist. I said, if Apple brings out the Apple Watch that is no longer a watch, but a key holder, or even that I can integrate it in the buckle of a watch, I don't mind reading my emails on my wrist. That's fun. It's a gadget. It's a toy. But it's not a watch. And I cannot have anything but a watch on my wrist. I love it. So, okay, we do a little wild card question at the end. I wanted you each to tell me... um, Tell me about a historical watchmaker that you would like to have a drink with and where you would be and what would your cocktail of choice be? From a technological uh, invention point of view, I'd like to have a glass of wine with Abraham Louis Breguet in Paris after the French Revolution when he had to relaunch his business. He launched a subscription watches. That would probably be uh, my first choice. If I ever made a second choice, I would have with Hans Wilsdorf, the founder of Rolex, though he wasn't a watchmaker uh, by by definition, I would have with him, he was from the south of Germany, I would probably have a good sauerkraut and a beer with him. Not sure if he liked it, uh, but he looked like a very (laughs) cozy guy um, because what the two men created is priceless. Uh, they, They should have been rewarded the Nobel Prize in watchmaking, both of them. Great. What about you, Daniela? My my choice isn't a historical figure, but something that just popped into my head. One watch brand that I'm starting to look at more and more is a brand called Ming Watches. It's an accessible price point, and I think they're just very sleek looking, and I and I love them. It's a watch I would buy for my brother, who's not a watch guy, and I think they're super cool. And from what I understand the creators of this brand aren't watch people. They, they just created this brand and I appreciate that. And I would have a vodka tonic with them because that's my favorite drink. And I would force them to have vodka tonics with me so we can all celebrate main watches together. <laughs> Perfect. So thank you so much. And I hope to meet Good. you in real life someday. Yes, thank you, Thank Beth. you. Okay. Thanks for tuning into Verso, an arts and culture podcast from Philips. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. Bye for now.